You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled What is Necessary in These Urgent Times. This is Lecture 16, the first of three lectures entitled The Development of Imperialism, in Part 1, here. Dornach, given in Dornach on February 20th, 1920. My lecture will be episodic today, an interpolation of sorts into our other considerations. The reason is that our English friends will soon be returning to their home country, and I would like them to have a lot to take back from their time here. To that end, I will deliver my considerations today such that one aspect or another might serve to support the necessary effectiveness of these words. Also, to that end, I want to address a few things about imperialism today, specifically looking at it historically from a spiritual, scientific, historical perspective, rather than examining imperialism in the present that can perhaps come tomorrow. Imperialism is a phenomenon that has been spoken of often nowadays, and there is a more or less clear awareness in those who speak about it of its connection with the collective phenomena of contemporary social life. But when people do speak about these sorts of things, they do not consider, at least not sufficiently, that we all are living in the stream of humanity's history, that we are standing in the midst of a very particular evolutionary epoch, and that we can understand this evolutionary epoch only when we know from whence come the phenomena that currently surround us, in whose midst we are currently living. The effective imperialism of today, and it will be effective into the future, which is practiced by the English American peoples and is essentially ringing in a new age for humankind, manifests itself at its most basic level as primarily economic imperialism. But the essential thing about this is is that everything said about these matters Everything that is connected to this economic imperialism is essentially untrue. It is, in fact, altogether false. It is full of hot air, shall we say. And in being full of hot air, it more or less consciously leads us toward non-truthfulness. But in order to see that in these times reality is altogether different than the things that are said about reality, it is necessary to peer deeply into the historical stream of these matters. To demonstrate the public's powers of discernment in regard to the facts of the contemporary world, I need only to point out to you one example. We all experienced the way in which Woodrow Wilson was glorified all over Europe and even in Germany itself. Our friends in Switzerland know well that during this period of glorifying Woodrow Wilson, I consistently spoke out against him. For it goes without saying that during the time when everyone was glorifying Woodrow Wilson, he was what he still is today. 
Already reports are coming in, and in saying this I do not mean to suggest that it is necessarily true that people in America are now saying that Woodrow Wilson is unfit for the presidency, that they are questioning his ability to make good decisions. Public opinion, as it winds its way confusedly through the world these days, shows its true nature sufficiently in such instances as this. Such examples demonstrate its true worth. And let us not forget a second example of this. In the last four or five years, there has been an extraordinary amount of talk about any number of beautiful and wonderful ideas, self-determination for all people and the like. These words were untrue, for all that lay behind them was of an entirely different nature. It all had to do with questions of power. And anyone who truly seeks an understanding must always return to the reality of what is said, thought, and judged. That people must pay particularly close attention when a word such as imperialism Parenthesis, Imperial Federation is the official word for it since the beginning of the 20th century in England, close parenthesis, is used. In these words, we find the most recent derivatives of a long progression of evolution and development. And these words lead backward into distant and diverse times. Their meaning can be found only through a true study of history. We will not go as far back into history as one could go back through spiritual scientific study. But we will at least go back to several millennia before the Christian calendar. There we find first and foremost several imperialistic empires in Asia and a slight variation on such imperialistic empires in Egypt. Very characteristic of the Eastern impulse is the Persian Empire, which is somewhat known to history but particularly characteristic is the Assyrian Empire. Now, it would be wrong to identify the first phase of imperialism solely in the final periods described in our histories of the Assyrian Empire, because you simply cannot understand the dominant impulses of the Assyrian Empire unless you are able to go back to earlier conditions in the East. Even China, whose entire structures dates structure dates back to the far distant past, has changed enough that you cannot recognize in that structure, which existed until recently, the actual character of Eastern imperialism. We can, however, still peer through the relationships that are historically known and see what actually underlies them. Now, we will not understand the whole of the ancient Eastern imperialism if we are not familiar with the general understanding of the relationship between the people of a particular era, let us say a particular empire, and those whom we would now refer to as the rulers or the ruling class of that empire. It goes without saying that words we use such as ruler or king or something of the sort do not express what was felt about the rulers or the ruling class at that time, only with great difficulty can we form a mental picture of the feeling world that existed in human beings three or four millennia before the beginning of the Christian calendar system, because it is so difficult for us to look back on the way in which human beings understood the relationship of the spiritual world to the physical world in that ancient time.
Nowadays, when most people think about a spiritual world, if they think about the spiritual world at all, they imagine it in some distant netherworld. And if people talk about the spiritual world, we must all talk about the spiritual world again in the future as something that exists around us, just as the sensory world does. Then everything said has something of the quality of what, for example, led us to Protestant thinking. In ancient times, the essence of the matter is namely that no differentiation was made between the physical world and the spiritual world. This is so much the case that when we speak about things relating to those ancient times, we can barely form any sort of organized mental picture of it. So different was the mental and imaginative life of those ancient peoples from the mental and imaginative life of modern-day human beings. Everything that had a physical existence, rulers, the ruled, a ruling class, enslaved people, all of this was reality. It was not something that could be called physical reality, but rather it was the reality. It was simultaneously the physical and the spiritual reality. And the rulers of the Eastern empires, who or what were they then? The ruler of an Eastern empire was its god. And all across that empire the people did not see a god somewhere above the clouds in those ancient times. I am always speaking of ancient times here. For these people there was no choir of spiritual beings surrounding an almighty god. This is a perspective from a later period of human history. Rather, those whom we would call ministers or courtiers, whether out of disrespect or respect, were beings with a godly nature. Everyone clearly understood that by going through the mystery schools, these individuals had become something greater than normal human beings. People looked to them as Protestant individuals looked to their God or as somewhat more liberal circles looked to their unseen angels or something of the sort. For unseen angels or an unseen God existing in a super-sensory world above and beyond reality simply did not exist for the peoples of the East. Everything that was spiritual lived within individuals. In normal human beings lived a human soul. In those we would call rulers lived a divine soul, a God. We can no longer form any imagination or understanding of this mental picture of a true godly realm that exists simultaneously as a physical realm. That, let us say, the king truly possessed the power and dignity of a god is self-evidently absurd in this day and age, but it was once the reality during the time of Eastern imperialism. People simply did not speak about anything that could be understood as purely spiritual. A slight variation, as I said, was present in Egypt, for in that area we find a transition into a later period. If we go all the way back to the oldest forms of imperialism, we find that this imperialism stems from the fact that the king, the ruler, who is a god, a god, a son of heaven, with a true physical existence on the earth, is in fact the father of heaven. This is so paradoxical for modern-day human beings that it hardly seems believable. But it is true.
But this fact is intimately connected with what we can observe in Assyrian documents about the way in which imperialistic conquests were justified. Conquests were simply undertaken. The right to make such conquests was simply derived from the fact that one had always to expand the realm of one's God. If an area was conquered and the conquered people became the subjects of another realm, then they had to honor the conqueror as their God. People were not thinking about this as an expansion of a religious worldview. Why would they have needed to? After all, everything was actualized in the physical world. When the people of the conquered territory paid outward tribute to their conquerors, when they followed them, then everything was as it should be. They could believe what they wanted. Beliefs, which is to say one's personal opinions, were left altogether untouched in ancient times. People did not concern themselves with them. This was the first form in which imperialism appeared. The second form was one in which the ruling class, those who were to take on a dominant leading role, were not themselves gods, but rather sent by God or inspired by God and filled by the divine. In the first stage of imperialism, we are dealing with a reality. This is an essential fact. First phase of imperialism, we were dealing with reality. When such a ruler of the ancient East appeared among his people, he always wore his regalia, for he was entitled as a god to wear such clothing. Those were the clothes of a god. That was how a god was to look. This simply means that the way in which the ruler appeared was the style among the gods. And those who were his paladins were not simply clerks or simple functionaries, but were rather higher beings who surrounded him and did what they did by virtue of their existence as higher beings. Then came the time, as I said before, in which people saw rulers as those who were their paladins as sent by God. Excuse me, let me read that again. Then came the time, as I said before, in which people saw rulers and those who were their paladins as sent by God, as individuals filled by the divine, as those commissioned by God. This was the prevailing idea, even at the time of Dionysus the Areopagite. Read his letters in which he describes the entire hierarchy of deacons, archdeacons, bishops and archbishops, the whole hierarchy of the church. How does he describe this hierarchy? Dionysus the Areopagite describes it as though in this earthly, churchly hierarchy one finds a reflection of what exists in the supersensory world with God and his elementary powers, archangels and angels. Thus there exists a heavenly hierarchy above and beneath is its reflection, the earthly hierarchy. The members of the earthly hierarchy, the deacons and archdeacons, don their robes and carry out their rituals because these things are symbols. In the first phase of imperialism we were dealing with reality. In the second phase we are dealing with symbols. Naturally this has all been more or less forgotten, for in the general consciousness of human beings nowadays, even among those who are Catholic, there is little awareness that the deacons, priests, deans, bishops and archbishops are the representatives, the proxy agents 
of the heavenly hierarchies, but this fact has merely been lost to memory. With these steps forward, imperialism reached what I would like to call a point of division, a true fork in the road. On one side, that which held leadership and command and command tended more toward those sent by God, toward a priesthood in which the priests were kings. On the other side, there was a greater movement toward the earthly, but the position of ruler came always with the grace of God. It was always directed and commissioned by God. Fundamentally, these are simply two slight variations of the same thing, and we find both variations in the course of human history, in church society and in political society. During the first period of imperialism, when everything was present in physical reality, such a division would have been unthinkable. But in the second phase of imperialism, this separation occurred. There we find some individuals who tended more toward earthly leadership, though always as a ruler sent by God, as well as other individuals also sent by God who tended toward leadership in the church. This lasted well into the Middle Ages, and I would like to point out that the life of the God-sent kings and priests in a physical empire, in the outer reality, lasted up to the year 1806 in one characteristic historical phenomenon. Of course, the Roman Church continued to exist and spread in the physical world after that point. That existence was more on the side of the priestly. But the thing that really held the Middle Ages together, the thing that strictly maintained the principle of the God-sent ruler here on the physical earth, was the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation, which, as I mentioned, came to an end only in 1806. This was the name of what existed in Central Europe as a sort of empire, the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation. In the word holy, you find a trace of the godly element that existed on the earth in ancient times. Quotes Roman points back to the empire's origins. <clears throat> German nation indicates the thing over which this empire was laying, the more earthly element upon which it was imposed. And so in the second phase of imperialism, we no longer find the anointed imperialism of the church. Instead, we have the intermingling of both godly and earthly anointed individuals within the empire. This began back in the old Roman Empire in pre-Christian times and lasted into the later years of the Middle Ages. The new imperialism that developed possessed a double nature. The Holy Roman Empire of the German nation... <coughs> period. Think about it for a moment. It all goes back to Charlemagne. Charlemagne was crowned by the Pope in Rome. Thereby, the position of the king was publicly made into a symbol, and consequently that which exists here on the physical earth is not all of reality. The people of the Middle Ages did not honor Charlemagne or Otto I as gods, as the people in ancient times would have done, but they saw them as individuals sent by God and that idea had to be constantly reinforced. Over time, it naturally weakened in human consciousness. 
but when it was made somehow visible, then as a symbolic act it took on a reality as a symbol at the very least. The emperors of the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation went to Rome so that they could be crowned by the Pope. Istvan I, the Hungarian, also went to Rome from Hungary in the year 1000 CE to be made king by the Pope. The spiritual powers imparted a blessing upon the individuals who ruled in the physical world and thereby awarded them power. But this led to the entrance of something new into human consciousness, causing them to believe that they had the authority and right to incorporate all others into this empire whose leader had been anointed by God. Dante himself was of the opinion that the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation was fundamentally entitled to rule the entire world. In this opinion of Dante's we find the formulation of imperialism. In the legends and lore that have crystallized in human consciousness throughout the course of our history, things are expressed that as a general rule can be considered from a wide variety of perspectives and do not have just one interpretation. We could say, in the 11th and 12th centuries, there must still have been a strong awareness in Europe, even if it were a bit unclear, more of a feeling awareness, but one that was felt very strongly, that back in ancient times, over in the East, there had been people on earth, people who lived a physical existence on earth, who had actually been gods. This was simply not a superstition. Oh no, on the contrary, people thought, nowadays such gods cannot live on the earth anymore because the earth has become so evil. That thing which once made human beings into gods has been lost. The Holy Grail has been lost, and now in the Middle Ages you can only teach it in the way that Parsifal did. You seek the path to finding the God within, whereas once God had a physical reality within an empire. Now that empire is just a collection of symbols and signs, and one must find God in those symbols, in those signs. From all these things that ever existed, vestiges remain. Reality becomes diluted. Vestiges remain in a wide variety of forms. As a general rule, when something, for as long as it has a reality in the world, is clear and singular, it becomes ambiguous and multifaceted as time passes. And consequently, a wide variety of things in Europe have sprung up from the clarity and singularity of old. For as long as the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation held any meaning for human consciousness, the leader of that Holy Roman Empire of the German nation was powerful, able to tame the individual angel symbols that were the princes of the various territories. For people still had it in their consciousness that it was his right to do this. But his right was based more or less in something ideal. <clears throat> Over time, that gradually lost its meaning. As a result, this left the princes of the territories on their own. And, speaking generally, in the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation, we have something that gradually pushed out its true inner substance, leaving only the external shell. 
that earthly human beings were sent by God to be leaders was gradually lost to consciousness, and the expression of that fact, that people were no longer able to think of earthly human beings as sent by God, is Protestantism. Protestantism is the protest against the true meaning of the individual, quote, sent by God, close quote. If the principle of Protestantism were truly to penetrate into our consciousness, then no crowned head or knighted individual could ever say that this was by the grace of God. But these things remain as vestiges of the past. These vestiges remained in the world through 1918, and then they disappeared. These vestiges, which had lost all of their inner meaning, still remained as outward phenomena in the world. These German territorial princes were still there as outward phenomena, but they only had any true meaning back in older times when they were symbols of an inspirited heavenly empire. There are still other vestiges of the past that exist in the world in a way that makes it difficult to know from which period they are a carryover. It was not so long ago that a Central European bishop or perhaps it might have been an archbishop, published a pastoral letter in which he basically proclaimed that a Catholic priest is more powerful than Jesus Christ, as proven by the simple fact that when a Catholic priest carries out the ritual of transubstantiation at the altar, Jesus Christ is obligated to be present in the host. The ritual of transubstantiation can only be completed through the powers of the priest, In other words, the action that the priest carries out compels the Christ Jesus to be present at the altar. Thus, the more powerful being is not the Christ Jesus, but rather the one who carries out the ritual of transubstantiation at the altar. When we want to understand such a thing, which, as I mentioned, was published only a few years ago in a pastoral letter, we must look back not to the second phase of imperialism, but rather to the first phase of imperialism, and how completely the Catholic Church and its subsidiaries preserved many aspects of this first phase of imperialism. In that we find a vestige of the consciousness that those who rule on the earth are gods, whereas Jesus Christ is only the Son of God. The content of this pastoral letter is, for someone with a Protestant consciousness, as impossible to believe as the idea that thousands of years ago people saw their rulers as gods is for a person nowadays to believe. But actually, all of these things are historical facts, are truths that in the historical being, in historical reality, have played a role. The vestiges of these truths are still present in the world to this day. And so it is that early realities play into the later phenomena of the world. This is not to say that the worldviews remain the same, but the practices that emerge from these worldviews do remain the same. Take a look at the way in which the teachings of Muhammad have spread across the world. Muhammad himself certainly never said, Muhammad is your God, as a priest leader of the ancient world might have said, several thousand years earlier, he limited himself to a declaration that was already more fitting to his time period, saying, There is a God, and Muhammad is his prophet. 
Thus, in human consciousness, he took on the position of a God-sent individual, the second phase of imperialism. In terms of the manner in which Muhammad's thought and teachings spread across the world, however, the first phase of imperialism is more fitting. The Muslims were never intolerant of people who held other beliefs, so long as they paid tribute to the God of Muhammad. The Muslims were content to conquer others and make them their subjects, just as it was done in ancient times, where there was also little concern for a person's beliefs. For in the end it made no difference what a person believed, as long as he simply recognized the power of the ruling God. The manner in which the Muslims spread across the world is a practice dating back to the first phase of imperialism. And in Russian despotism, in the czars of Russia, something also remained from the first phase of imperialism, strongly colored by its movement through the second phase. In the whole way in which the people of Russia think of the czar, or at the very least in the mood that exists in their feeling core, there is something that can be traced back to the first phase of imperialism. As a result, there has been so little interest in bringing together what actually exists in the consciousness of the Russian people with the things that stream out from the czars. For actually the czar's position of rule in Russia is based on German and Mongolian elements and not actually the elements of the Russian peasants. Thus the vestiges of early time, earlier times continue to exist in the present. Even in the recent historical periods we can find these vestiges of the past. This brings us to the third phase of imperialism. Though it has been fully formed only since the beginning of the twentieth century, when Chamberlain and his people came up with the concept of the Imperial Federation, its origins lie farther into the past, sometime in the second half of the seventeenth century. At that time there was that great revolution in England, which for all of the Anglo-American peoples living in western territories, effectively turned the personage of the king, who had once been a god, and then had been god-sent, into a mere shadow, a mere, we cannot say decoration, but into a position merely tolerated. After the seventeenth century, the laws and acts of a population came out of what was desired by the people. Of course, this was at first divided along class lines. Then the Anglo-American peoples brought different prior experiences and preconditions to this, shall we say, will-of-the-people idea, this system of popular voting. Then did others, such as the French, the descendants of the Romans, the Latins. The Latin peoples, particularly the French, underwent a revolution of their own in the 18th century. But due to the influence of things that I described to you here not long ago, the French as a people are actually more kingly than any other people of the world. You do not need to have a king as your leader in order to be kingly. To be sure, a person cannot continue to act as the ruler of a people after his head has been chopped off, but the French people are kingly, imperialistic, without having a king at the helm. It has to do with the condition of the French soul. This collective feeling of oneness as a people, this collective folk consciousness, 
is actually a real, a very real vestige of the consciousness at the time of Louis XIV. But the English-speaking peoples brought other preconditions and prior experiences to the idea we can call the, quote, will of the people, close quote. And, gradually, out of the assessments that effectively became public opinion, out of the things that streamed out into society from the elected officials in Parliament, the third form of imperialism emerged and developed, formulated first by individuals such as Chamberlain and others like him. But we will try to consider it on the soul level today, this third form of imperialism. The first imperialism had reality. A person was a god in the consciousness of the other people. His paladins were gods surrounding him, lesser gods. Second imperialism, all things on the earth are symbols and signs. God was simply at work within individuals. Third form of imperialism, everything on earth that originates and streams outward from the human soul is divested of its status as a symbol or sign. Just as we moved from realities to symbols and signs, so do we now move from symbols and signs to phrases. This is said without any stirrings of feeling. He has a Latin phrase here, sign ira, I-R-A. It is a purely objective description of a fact resulting from the necessary process of earthly becoming. Since the 17th century, it is truly the case that everything occurring in the public life of the Anglo-American peoples, everything spoken or written in books of law is the, quote, will of the people, close quote, divided along class lines, of course. Perhaps tomorrow or the next day we will come to a description of this will of the people, but it is a phrase, the relationship that exists between what is spoken and reality is not the same as the one between a symbol and reality. This is the course things follow in the human soul. It moves in this progression from reality to symbol and then to phrase, to dried out, empty words. And what results from out of these dried out and empty words becomes the principal reality of the time. No person would ever imagine that the resulting reality was once godly in its origin. For let us think for a moment about the foundation of that imperialism whose dominant element is the phrase. In the first imperialism the king, in the second imperialism the anointed, in the third imperialism the phrase. It goes without saying that nothing real will ever result from the principle of majority rules. Only dominant phrases will come of it. And these realities drift about below and are consequently never perceived to be somehow godly or divine. Let us take a look at one of the important foundations for the things that occur as reality. Colonial. Colonization. Colonization plays a major role in the development of the third imperialism. For the whole colonial system, the spread of the empire into the colonies, the imperial federation is the final form, the means of centralizing this effort. But how did these colonies originally take form as limbs of the empire? Think about what actually occurred. Adventurers, 
individuals for whom no one had any real use within the empire, people who were a little rough around the edges, moved out into the colonies, got rich, and then went home and spent all of their money. This, however, did not do anything to turn them into distinguished people, so they continued to be adventurers, bohemians. And thus the colonial empire was brought together. This is the reality that existed under the influence of the phrase. But vestiges of the past remain, just as symbols and phrases or territorial princes and czars remained from the original realities of the world, realities continue to exist from the adventurous undertakings of the somewhat notorious, odious colonists, realities that we now find ourselves left with. Is it not the case that at some point these adventurers were, shall we say, adopted? Their sons, well, they were perhaps not quite so notorious and odious. They smelled a little better than their fathers. Their grandsons smelled much better than their grandfathers. And then you see, then comes a time where everything smells lovely. In this case the phrase usurps something, and already the odious act begins to smell altogether good. The state stretches broad its wings and becomes the protector, and suddenly everything is above board. It is necessary, however, that we grasp the true point of these things. It is perhaps impossible to call them by their true name, for the names we use seldom give an indication of the reality of the things. It is necessary because only by doing that can we begin to understand the tasks given to us by this time and the responsibility that this time has placed before us. Only by doing that can we come to see that so-called history, meaning the history taught and studied in schools and universities, is a fable convenu. This history does not call the things by their true names. On the contrary, it has the effect of gradually attaching these names to untruths. It is a terrible thing, is it not? what I have just described. But you see, now it is the time to channel this sense, this feeling of responsibility, even if only a little bit. Let us consider now the other side of this matter. Let us look back for a moment at an ancient empire. It was all real, real on earth in human perception. The priest kings arose from the mystery schools. The second was no longer on earth, Rather, the second was symbolic. There is a wide gap separating the ancient rulers and the paladins who hung upon them like godly jewels, and the red or black eagles denoting the third, fourth, or first rank that were then hung upon individuals. But nevertheless, this is the path of history. Things went from reality to nothingness, and finally they became no longer a symbol but fundamentally nothing more than the expression of a phrase. Is it not the case that now the superficiality of the general phrase system that spread from the West out into the rest of the world has penetrated even into public affairs? I have even heard now of, quote, titular heads of state, close quote. Now the rulers and advisers had unusually little to rule or advise anyway, or in some cases knew little about how to rule or advise, but titular heads of state? And still, everything can be traced back to that old practice of which I spoke. 
In the first phase I talked about, everything that existed in the physical world, everything that was real on earth, was also thought to be altogether spiritual. In the second phase it was thought to be simply filled with spiritual substance. And the third phase must grow beyond its current form, which I have just described to you. It must grow beyond the empire of the phrase and all the realities associated with it that we have just talked about. The third phase must bring into reality the spiritual empire here on earth. Whereas in the first phase physical reality was thought to be spiritual, we may not allow ourselves to think of physical reality as spiritual only in the future, but therefore spiritual reality must be present here in the physical world. In other words, spiritual reality must live and exist beside physical reality. We must all move about and through the physical world while simultaneously recognizing a spiritual reality and being able to speak about a truly extant supersensory world that, though invisible, is nevertheless there and must be supported by us. I spoke before of something very negative, the phrase. But if the outer world had not moved so completely into empty phrases, there would be no space into which the spiritual empire could enter. It is because everything old has now become nothing more than an empty phrase that an empty space now exists for the spiritual empire to fill, especially in the West, in the Anglo-American world. Everything is managed in such a way that a lot of people continue to speak in, shall we say, old familiar idioms about any number of things that come from days of old. As I have said, this will continue to roll along like a ball rolling down a hill. In people's words, this will continue to roll along. You can find countless sayings and phrases in the West that have lost all meaning but continue to be regularly used. But the actual idea of a phrase containing no reality, a phrase out of which all true reality has already been squeezed, that lives not only in these old sayings and phrases, but actually in everything identified by old words. In those empty phrases is the space wherein the spiritual, or something that is not in accord with any of the things of old, can take hold. It was necessary for the old to become nothing more than a phrase. We must throw out everything old that continues to fester within our language and bring in something altogether new which can stream out toward us only from the spiritual world. Only then can a Christ empire come to be on the earth, for the following must be accepted as a reality in that empire. My kingdom is not of this world. In the empire of this world in which the Christ empire first appeared, there was still much that existed in this world that had not yet become an empty phrase. But everything that came from an older time in the Western world was foreordained to become an empty phrase. Yes, in the West, in the Anglo-American world, all human traditions and practices will become empty phrases. Consequently, the responsibility, the responsibility lies there to place a spirit in the empty receptacle left behind 
a spirit of whom it can be said, His kingdom is not of this world. This is the great responsibility of our time. It is not about the form into which things have developed. What is important is what we do now that they have so developed, and thus these things become part of a continuity. Our discussion tomorrow might further actualize this continuity. We will talk about the secret societies that are active beneath the surface in the Western world. These societies traditionally move from the second phase of imperialism toward the third, for in the Anglo-American peoples we find two different imperialisms intermingled with one another, the economic imperialism of Chamberlain and the symbolic imperialism of the secret societies, which are very actively and effectively integrated, but necessarily kept secret from the population at large. The end of Lecture 16